Good day, legends. Welcome back to the Bloody Brilliant Pushers podcast. Alas, I am not joined by my wonderful co-host Hamish. It is, this is somewhat of an impromptu podcast. Do not feel I have my research, and it is quite late at night. Thus, we must explore this this episode's topic theme, if you will, by ourselves, without Hamish, all on our lonesome. Do not worry, I still have a great show in mind for you. So, what I would like to consider this week, and what I would like you to consider, is culture, and specific Russian culture. And now, you may think, oh, that's rather random, isn't it? But as someone learning Russian, quite fascinated by Russia, and quite, you could say, in love with Russia, not for me. But uh, nevertheless, how does it relate to you? Well, Russian culture is the perfect case study, I would argue, of suffering and how that relates to great and weak men. And just to illustrate that, just to illustrate what I mean by Russian culture relating to suffering, I... In doing some research for this podcast, I found a quote by Boris Shubina, uh, who is uh, portrayed in the Chernobyl show, the HBO show Chernobyl. And in that, provides us with a quote, which I think is perfect, or near perfect, nothing's perfect really, but near perfect in describing the Russian culture throughout the centuries, or at least the Russian people. And now, quick disclaimer, um, when I say Russia, Russian people, whatever, uh, I'm sorry, you you Ukrainians and Belarusians out there, I'm kind of referring to, say, the people of the Russian Empire. So, going back all the way to Kievan Rus, these are the Eastern Slavs, if you will, the Eastern Slavs. Now, if I'm honest, some of this could be applied to the Southern Slavs and Western Slavs as well, but I feel it is most extreme and most evident in the in the case of the Eastern Slavs. The Eastern Slavs being the Belarusians, the Russians, and the Ukrainians. So, just a little disclaimer: when I say Russia, Russians, Russian people, Russia, whatever, just imagine the peoples of the Russian of the old Tsarist Russian Empire or the old Soviet Union, if you will. Now to the quote, Boris Shapina. You're going to have to excuse my pronunciation, although I'm learning Russian, I'm not the best case of the quote. Boris Shapina says, You'll do it because it must be done. You'll do it because nobody else can. And if you don't, millions will die. If you tell me that's not enough, I won't believe you. And now this is this is the good part coming here. This is what has always set our people apart, the Russian people, the Ukrainian, the Belarusian. A thousand years of sacrifice in our veins, and every generation must know its own suffering. I spit on the people who did this, and I curse the price I have to pay, but I'm making my peace with it. And now you make yours, and go into that water, because it must be done. Now, of course, as referring to all the nuclear stuff and the breakdown of the reactor, Chernobyl, etc, etc. But the specific quote, especially that middle part about our people is making a sacrifice for a thousand years and every generation knowing its own suffering is quite interesting and quite quite a good example of that Eastern Slavic culture. 
Now, let us just break this quote, quote apart. Initially, he says, you'll do it because it must be done. You'll do it because nobody else can. And now, of course, this is referring to the re the reactor in Chernobyl and limiting its danger, etc., etc. However, if if you take this quote as symbolic, or at least referring to say say Boris's Boris Boris Shabina is talking to the Russian people as a whole, every single Russian, every single Ukrainian, Belarusian. Okay, so it says you'll do it because it must be done. You'll do it because nobody else can. Now this is this I believe is quite evident of the Russian now when I say Russian Russian Ukrainian Belarusian attitude towards life doing things etc. So for example a Russian say a Russian man will it, it it's 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 like the car, you do it because it must be done, okay? So your car is broken. Your car, you'll find, your, your lather, if you will. You'll find Soviet lather has been broken. Well, has broken, rather. Excuse, excuse the grammar. Excuse the poor grammar. You'll do it because it must be done. Now, let's say doing it, in this case, is walking maybe five hours or so in the snow. You're, you're in a provincial town. Let's say North, North Caucasus. Okay, so it's, it's, real. It's, it's realistic enough that there's not a mobile device. So in a provincial town, your Soviet Lada has broken down. You'll do it because it must be done. Okay, if you don't do it, your Soviet Lada is going to stay broken. We, can't, we just can't have our Soviet Lada stay broken. You'll do it because nobody else can. Well, you're the young male guy, perfect fighting age, whatever, you're the fittest guy. And the only person with you is your old babushka, your old dadushka, right? And uh, you don't really, they know, you know, that an old babushka is not going to walk down those mountain roads for five hours in the snow to get to the mechanic. He's going to come out with his little tow truck and fix your old larder. And... So, what do you do? Well, of course, being a Russian, you say, bugger what I think. Bugger the fact that I don't want to walk in the snow. Bugger that. I'm going to do it. I have to do it. I have to make the sacrifice to do it. Now, of course, you could say that, like it says in the quote, that if you tell me that's not enough, you know, I can't do it. It's not going to be good enough. The ladder's going to break in a month's time. What Boris here says back, but what 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 the Russian mindset says back to you is, I won't believe you. You're BSing me. You can, you can do it. You're going to have to do it. Okay, I don't even I don't care what you want to do, but you have to do. You have to sacrifice yourself. Your individuality, your pleasures, which of course aren't necessarily good things, but you have to sacrifice these aspects of yourself for others, which of course isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's constant sacrifice, sacrifice for the state, sacrifice for the government, which isn't necessarily a good thing, <laughs> quite different to the others in the community. Sacrifice yourself for some ideal, 
sacrifice yourself for some ideology, etc. Now going back to our car example, okay, you do it. You have to. Now old Lada is saved and it's fixed. You sacrifice yourself, whatever. But now it says further on, I spit on the people who did this. So say, say some 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 bloody gopniks came in. They're the ones who broke your Lada. So the Russian mindset says you spit on what Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the thievery class. Now, the thieves, the gopniks, the the people, the government officials, the 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 people who who caused the problems. And yet the the Russian Russian mindset also curses the price you have to pay. Also curses the fact that you have to walk five hours in the snow. But the Russian mindset goes, I'm making my piece of it. Yes, I really, really don't like those bloody gopniks who buggered up my car, my, buggered up my beautiful Soviet larder that forced me to go and walk five hours in the snow. I don't like walking five hours in the snow down a snow mountain with some cheap winter gear. Nevertheless, the Russian mindset says, I've made my piece of it. I'll do it. I have to and what the Russian mindset says okay I've made my peace with having to make sacrifices and now you make your peace with having to make your sacrifice walking down the snow okay and then of course it brings back to the Chernobyl case go into the water because it must be done so you must make a sacrifice now what is interesting here I haven't even got to the middle bit have I I've gone to the outer it says I'm making you 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 recognize that it's the other people, the government, the ideology, the certain aspects of the community, the thievery class, the Sultanism, we call it. You recognize that they did this, did this to you. They, they're the ones that causing you to make this tremendous sacrifice, this uh, momentous sacrifice, this rather you know unpleasant sacrifice, if we're honest. And you also curse the fact that you have to, make a sacrifice it's like oh goodness me i don't want to walk five hours no i don't want to charge at the german machine gun at stalingrad you know quite frankly all i want to do is go live in my in my little provincial village 200 kilometers northeast of chelyabinsk and do some farming with my wife and kids whatever but no the state, the government, the ideology, the community, the whatever, requires a sacrifice. Thus, a sacrifice must be done. It must be made, rather. <laughs> Sorry for the grammar. But the thing is, we must, before we continue, we really must distinguish between the two types of sacrifice. Now, the first type of sacrifice, I would say, is the justifiable sacrifice, the honourable sacrifice, the righteous sacrifice. And so we see other examples of this in places, say say that aren't to do with Russia. So we, we see this in the Christian Christian uh, beliefs, so the, the sacrifice made by Jesus, you know, he sacrificed himself to the cross so that everyone can have eternal life in the Christian sense. Um, we see the sacrifice Buddha made so that he was able to achieve enlightenment and thus, te thus teach um, his teach from his experience and share it with the world. 
Um, we see common sacrifices sacrifices made out made throughout myths. Um, so we have, and also real life. So often you see in war stories and that sort of thing. Um, Desmond Doss sacrificing his safety, uh, luckily not his life, great fellow, uh, to save those 75 men. The sacrifice the Spartans made at Thermopylae to save Greece, if you will. Um, and so on, really. So that would be the honorable sacrifice. You're sacrificing yourselves, you're sacrificing yourself uh, for the sake of others. Um, you're sacrificing them out of love out of the, the desire to protect you sacrificing yourself for for the community which is appreciates you and you appreciate them so you're sacrificing yourself for essentially a noble cause a righteous cause now which is the the case that old Boris here is discussing so it says and if you don't millions will die so that's referring to Chernobyl um this person he's referring to doesn't make their sacrifice, millions will die. So in, in, in the case of Chernobyl, that that I would class as a noble sacrifice. However, if we look further into the case of Chernobyl, it's not so simple. It's more nuanced than that. And this is when the second class of sacrifice comes in. Now, the second class of sacrifice, I would argue... It's not that making the sacrifice is unjust or un unrighteous, rather. If we look, if we look at her, uh, you know, we can, I think we can all agree that the sacrifice those actionable made was righteous. They sacrificed their life. They sacrificed, you know, even if you'd think, even if they're willing to die, they sacrificed a peaceful death that was rather painful and violent. Yet, we can agree it was a noble sacrifice. It was a righteous sacrifice. However. It's more nuanced because the sacrifice they made only they only had to make the sacrifice because of unjust, unnoble, unrighteous forces. Now, in the case of Chernobyl, I'll be referring to uh, the government officials, the Soviet state in general, the the lies and corruption that were that just filled the Soviet Union. Uh, that's at a wider level, and of course, the local officials. Uh, the management at the reactor to an extent, and just poor planning and management. And now this is to be expected with the likes of a of a Soviet socialist, communist, Marxist, whatever government. But still, and still, it's an un, it's a sacrifice that needed to be made for an unjust reason. It's a it's a righteous sacrifice that needed to be made for an unrighteous reason. That unrighteous reason being the fact that, quite frankly, the the government officials, whatever, whatever, bug it up. They lied. They didn't manage it properly. Whatever, they bug it up. And because of that, these people had to sacrifice their lives, their dignity, themselves to save millions. And now we see this again with Soviet history. So if we look at so in Soviet history, we look at World War Two. And now this one, this one isn't so um, so anti-Soviet. Although, quite frankly, you can kind of blame them a bit. So, World War Two, nineteen forty-two, June twenty-second, Operation Barbarossa begins. 
uh, Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler, invades the Soviet Union, even though they had the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, rather. Um, and so, because of the unrighteous forces of Adolf Hitler, the Nazi Party, Nazi Germany, etc., the people of the Soviet Union, well, at least at this point, at least according to Stalin, needed to make this big sacrifice. Which, the sacrifice they made to save their families, whatever, whatever, from the Nazis, seemingly righteous. Now, however, you can't really say that the Soviet Union was in itself in a righteous war for two reasons. This may surprise you, but many in the Soviet Union, at first, or at least for a good long while, and at first, at least at first, in most cases, saw the Nazis as liberators. Now, from in hindsight, from the from our our supreme knowledge of hindsight, we kind of realize, of course, actually, no, that they, they, they saw the Slavs as less human, but at the time, they saw them as liberators because they had been under Soviet rule for near 20 years, right? So the near 20 years of Soviet rule, and now we're talking uh, pretty much genocide. We look at the Holodomor, we look at the Gulags, etc. These people were like kind of fed up with the Soviet Union, and now the Nazis come in, they're, they're anti-Soviet Union, so like you're all anti-Soviet Union. So that, that that's that's the stuff when you see the Cossacks helping, that's, that's when you see the Cossacks helping the, well, not all Cossacks, but the Cossack, there were Cossacks that helped the Germans and the Lithuanians that helped carry out their little genocide in that side of town, um, because they were just so anti-Soviet Union that they would do they would they would go for the other evil, if you will, just so they weren't with the Soviet Union, and so the Soviet Union's uh, policies kind of backfired. Nevertheless, so that's one way where it's not just the Nazis, um, Nazi Germany that created an unrighteous, that forced an unrighteous sacrifice. The Soviet Union also created an unrighteous sacrifice because they kind of need, like these people were sacrificing, in hindsight, their dignity, also their lives to fight the Soviet Union on the side of the Germans. Now, secondly, it's it's kind of a well-known fact, um, and if we look at it in more detail, it becomes even more obvious that the Soviet high command and the Soviet uh, big, big bosses, to speak colloquially, you know, Stalin, Beria, and all his uh, best buds, kind of like nearly completely failed at defending the Soviet Union in that initial, uh, that initial wave of Barbarossa. It's like, goodness me. What like they got really close to Moscow, and they in 1940, 1943 there. Wait, oh sorry, um, awfully sorry. I, I said Operation Barbarossa began twenty second June. Operation uh, nineteen forty uh, two. It's nineteen forty one began. Awfully sorry. Operation Barbarossa June nineteen forty one, and so the Soviet Union impromptu, isn't it? Yeah. So the Soviet Union high command completely buggered up in that initial um, Operation Barbarossa in 1941. And now, of course, they did manage to push the, the, the Nazis, that, that centre army, back from Berlin. 
in the December January 1941 continuing on a bit however the Nazis and their allies well puppets <laughs> whatever you want to call them um, managed to take the Caucasus, a lot of the Caucasus, that southern front, and they swung around, of course, Stalingrad and all that, pushed them back and kind of uh, shut the door from any possible victory. But nevertheless, they, so the Soviet Union thoroughly buggered up. And because of that, and because of bad policy, like for, exa for example of bad policy, any so Soviet um, soldier, whatever, that was captured by a German, was in a German prison of war camp, okay, not only were they treated like, excuse my awful language here, shit, um, essentially concentration camp sort of treatment, but if they managed to escape or they got liberated by the Russians, or well, the Soviets rather, um, yeah, no, they're not, they're not going to be welcomed in with open arms and hooray, we saved you. It's more like, oh, why'd you get captured? Uh, you should have just kept shooting until they killed you or you killed yourself. So, boom. So, with the failure of Operation Barbarossa and with the failure of, uh, po bad, with the bad policy, combined with the hatred the Soviet people had, therefore siding with the Nazis in certain cases, the Soviet Union also created an unrighteous sacrifice, as did Nazi Germany, an unrighteous sacrifice. So that's what we see there. And thus, this 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 unrighteous sacrifice was created by these two, say, let's let's say, um, evil superpowers. And because of that, um, the millions, 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 millions of Russians, Russians, Ukrainians, but Russians, made a noble sacrifice. So, in certain instances, of course, no, just not just going to the front, whatever, noble sacrifice, not necessarily, you may just be supporting, you could just be a commissar, like, come on, that's, that's just supporting the unrighteous sacrifice. However, um, there were many noble sacrifices made, you know, um, soldiers sacrificing the, them, themselves to save their their battalion or whatnot. If we look at the Night Witches, for example, wonderful story there of sacrifice, righteous sacrifice to save the, the few. However, the, the them doing these noble sacrifices was a cause of them needing to make a sacrifice in the first place because an unrighteous sacrifice needed to be fulfilled due to the actions, poor planning, whatever, of the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. So that's an unrighteous sacrifice. An unrighteous sacrifice is sacrificing yourself for a cause that isn't really righteous. And, and even if you're doing a noble sacrifice, you may be doing it for... You may be doing a noble sacrifice on the minor scale, but you've had to make a sacrifice because of an a unrighteous sacrifice that needs to be fulfilled, and that was created by some uh, malicious force, so Soviet Union. And so now you have these two forms of sacrifice, and and as 
old Boris, as we return to Boris Shabina here, says, this is what has always set our people apart. And when he says our people, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Belarusians, this is what has set them apart. And that is a thousand years of sacrifice in our in our in the Russians and the Belarusians and the Ukrainians' veins. They know sacrifice better than any other people on earth, any other people in the universe, I would argue. And that, I would say, is because of, I would argue, suffering. I would, I would go so far to say that the Russian people, when I say Russian people, Ukrainians, better Russians, Russians, whatever, have suffered the most on it in history. Possibly, possibly the Chinese, the the, Chi- the Han Chinese, and those within the lands of modern day, and the Chinese, and the people that are within the borders of modern day communist China, possibly as much as that, possibly they have suffered as much as the Russians. Maybe more. They they would be the only one I'm a bit fuzzy on. But other than that, the Russians, Ukrainians, better Russians, those those people have suffered as a as a collective whole, as a large as a large group. The former Tsarist Empire peoples have suffered the most. I would say, other than maybe but maybe the peoples of modern day communist China. And so the suffering forces sacrifice and because because this suffering is often created by an external force and this external force often requires an unrighteous sacrifice for so an unrighteous sacrifice is really a sacrifice for an unrighteous cause so say for example um the the soviet union buggering up at chernobyl so it was like the Soviet government, all that, they failed. So they had to force others to make a sacrifice to save their, the millions of people. So the saving the millions of people was noble, but they had to make the sacrifice because of people bugging up and not being righteous, right? And so that's just a small example. And so because they've had to make a constant sacrifice, 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 the Russian, Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians suffer. And I'm not saying that suffering is inherently bad, that making sacrifice is inherently bad. Of course not. We have righteous sacrifice. And the Russians even admit that suffering isn't necessarily bad. You know, they, they have a phrase, the Russians, there's a Russian phrase, Bezmuchi niet nuchia. Which, which literally translates to um, without torture, no science. But it, it, it really, it, um, if we translate it to like proper English, it's kind of like without adversity, um, you don't learn, sort of thing. Without suffering, you don't learn. And so, um, and so, it's, 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 Accepted that without suffering, you need suffering to grow, um, you need sacrifice to grow, etc. However, it, if your whole history is suffering, and it's kind of like you're suffering constantly, 
that can have adverse effects. Although, it can also surprisingly have positive effects. This suffering is also highlighted in Boris's quote. It says, and every generation must know its own suffering, thereby confirming what we've been talking about thus far, that the Russians, the Ukrainians, Belarusians, the Russians, let me say, to use my little disclaimer, have suffered and some would say are still suffering probably more than most a lot more than most cultures and peoples and that's those sorts of categories and because of their suffering they've had to make a great number of sacrifices and now often at the low uh, the smaller scale okay they make a sacrifice to save a million people they make a sacrifice to save the battalion but they've had to sacrifice for a million people they've had to make a sacrifice for the battalion because of some unrighteous sacrifice that was created by a larger power usually the russian government or whatever powers at be in russia and also, those sacrifices create their suffering. So it's kind of like a like a linked thing, a link a link between the sacrifices made and the suffering. And so um, now, if we if we just move on from sacrifices a little bit, as of course as a this is a getting quite a good length. So we, we best not so stay for too long. So, sacrifices, okay, we understand that Russian people suffer. And then we, Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, they suffer. And they make sacrifices. Okay, we understand that. We understand that these sacrifices can be noble. You know, say, sacrificing yourself for your battalion, sacrificing yourself to save a million people at Chernobyl, whatever. Um... But often these sacrifices are needed to be made because of some unrighteous sacrifice. So they need to be made because of some unrighteous reason. We, we get to that. Now, on suffering. What are the consequences of suffering? And now when I say suffering, I don't just mean personal suffering, but suffering as a people, as a whole, as a collective. What happens if as a people and community, you suffer, you know suffering back to front. This is interesting, especially in the case of Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, etc. Because there's such a stark contrast. And what is the stark contrast between those who succeed because of and in spite of the suffering versus those who who can't handle it, uh, just become overwhelmed by it, their burden of their suffering is just too large, and in a sense they collapse. Now, if we look at the second, the second, uh, the second group first. In Russia, and the Russian culture, it is quite evident that this group exists. It is a, it is a well-known stereotype about uh, alcohol in Russia. You know, 
the alcoholism problem. And the massive gap between female life expectancy and male life expectancy because of alcoholism and drinking and etc. You know, the whole Gopnik sort of thing. Now I have here this article. This article, volume 34, issue number 6 by Martin McKee. Pages 824 to 829. It's titled Alcohol in Russia. Now, I've tr- this article was made in November 1999. That was when it was published. And now if you look at that, you may think, oh, that's a bit outdated. Now, if you consider 1999, when... Did the Soviet Union collapse? You know, Berlin War came down, 1989. It was kind of in a constant state of chaos since chaos since then, and it itself collapsed 1991, right? So, from the actual collapse, it's been eight years. But from when things started to heat hit the fan, it's been around eleven, right? So. The amount of suffering has increased, because uh, the amount, when when chaos increases, suffering kind of tends to increase depending on uh, what type of chaos it is. But in this case, it's harming chaos. So, if we look at if we look at the stats here, we have the stats. Now these are stats in the nineties, ninety five, ninety six, whatever. But if we, I'll just read a paragraph here. From uh, this article, and then we'll we'll dig deep and we'll dig into it. So it's here: the Russian Longitudinal Monitoring Survey, undertaking undertaken regularly since 1992, contains data on between 10 and 12,000 people. Bracket Zerhori 1996. Bracket. In the round undertaken in 1995, 70 to 80% of males, aged 20 to 55 years which is like the vast majority of all males, and 50 to 60% of all females aged 20 to 50 years drank regularly, with 50 to 10%, 5 to 10% in all age groups drinking the equivalent of 100 grams per day. It seems reasonable to assume that some of those who drank most heavily were less likely to be included in the survey, so these figures may have been underestimates. Now, this is interesting when you contrast it with the 80s, where there had been sort of a push to decrease alcohol consumption. Um, You see, often alcohol consumption in Russia goes back far and is greatly linked to their suffering and state induced suffering. So, you see, in the Tsarist times, uh, before in the earlier times before Ivan the Terrible. The peasants used to make their own alcohol. It was kind of like a free trade of alcohol, you know, proper proper competition going on. And then the nobles, the czars, whatever, they realized, okay, with alcohol you can kind of control the population. They will buy alcohol. If we control the means of producing, say, vodka, we can control the price and hence control the population. 
And so you see this in Catherine the Great. She in, she would reward her nobles not by giving them money, land, power, prestige, titles, whatever, but giving them vodka plants, vodka factories. And so that carries on. The Soviet times, instead of the czars, whatever, it was the Soviet government. Now in the 80s, maybe that was too expensive, whatever, but they were decreasing that. They were trying to reduce their consumption. And it was actually working pretty well because of that. Well, if you have a monopoly on it, you can just, and, it, and you cut off the alcohol. Yeah, it's going to work pretty well. However, in the 90s, the union collapsed. And this increased suffering increased alcohol consumption. Now, it's found that 70 to 80 percent of males aged 25 drank regularly. Now, if you drink 196 grams of alcohol in a week, if you drink 196 grams or over in a week, and you're male, your life expense expectancy will decrease by one between one to two years, okay? And that's just 196 it's just 196 grams. Now, if you drink over, it will decrease more. And of course, if you drink 500 to 600 grams a week of alcohol, you're going to be at quite a high risk of certain diseases, liver disease, whatever. If we look here, only 9% of men reported not drinking any alcohol at all this is interesting here, 35% of women compared to 35% of women. Now, the reason for this, I am not certain why it's the men drinking alcohol. Maybe it's because they're more involved, they may have been more involved in its creation. It may have been more of a male thing to do. Maybe the female, you know, at the time, Russia's quite, Russia's quite a traditional sort of society. Maybe the female, you know, had to kind of keep her stuff together so that she could uh, sort of run the family. You know, Russia's quite tra traditional in that regard. However, you see, the, the contrast is, is fascinating. 31% of men would drink at least 25 of vodka at one in one go. At least once a month. And 11% of men would drink at least 50 of vodka in one session at one at once per month, 50. Compared to 1% of women and 3% of women. Now, what is the contrast here? I don't know. It may be the fact that, you know, this is it's proven that Girls are more able to express their emotions, what they're going through, etc. Whereas men kind of bottle up and damage themselves and others. And so, despite the suffering, women are able to deal with it. Perhaps because of the traditional society, so they have more responsibilities, so they kind of have to you know, buckle down, and they're more able to express themselves and their suffering. Whereas men don't generally. Thus, alcohol consumption goes up. And what happens with 
an increase in alcohol consumption. What happens when you have 11% of men drinking at least 50 of alcohol, vodka in one session? Well, the life expectancy drops. And Russian life expectancy is evident of this. Okay, This is evident. Compared to... Okay, this is modern day Russia. It's it's had it's 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 slowly improving the alcoholism, but this is modern day Russia. Modern day U.S. Okay, modern day U.S. seventy eight point six four. It's in the U.S. It's kind of risen a little bit, you know, maybe by a few points, but Russia is currently at seventy two point six six years and for a man it's 66.7 years whereas a female is 77.81 and then between that you get average. but a female's average life expectancy is 77.81 years whereas a man's is 67.65 now i'll tell you something I'll tell you something slightly personal. My dad is 63. I would definitely not like it if he only had five years left to live. Now, I can't can't say how long he does have left to live, but I would hazard a guess and say it's longer than that. And for him to die at at such an age is somewhat unbelievable to me. And the fact that it's around 10 years difference in the life expectancy is astonishing. And moreover, the difference between the U.S. and Russia is astonishing. If you look at the average life expectancy, the U.S. is 78.54. And now this is the U.S., you know, the U.S. who's like the fattest country on earth, this U.S. The U.S. that everyone always points fingers at for having a multitude of health problems. This is that U.S. Even Turkey, right? Though I must commend Turkey for its rapid increase. But even Turkey, Middle East, you know, Middle East isn't the best place. Now, of course, it's not it's not in a war zone like Syria, but still, it's it's not like it's some super developed nation. Even the U.S. is five, has an average life expectancy five years greater than that in Russia. Russia's average life expectancy is 72.66 years as of present, as of 2018, to be specific. Comparing that to the rest of the world, it's like, oh my goodness, eesh. Now, alcoholism is a large part of that. And so is the Duma, if you to use modern terms. And so is that sort of lifestyle and attitude. And if you just look at any city other than, say, Vladivostok, Moscow, St. Petersburg, you understand what I'm saying. These places don't have any pride in them. The government doesn't care. Of course the government doesn't care. But... They're kind of running down. And if you live in that sort of environment, it's going to drain you mentally. And if it drains you mentally, you're going to get drained physically.
And then you're going to... Alcoholism rates are going to increase. Cigarette violence, whatever, is going to increase. That's why you have all these gopniks. The gopniks will go around beating people, right? So that's what you ha- That's why you have them. And so that relates to our original point after we had gone through sacrifice, etc. Et that was our point about suffering and suffering in the Russian context. The suffering is when you suffer as a people and when you suffer as a person, this relates to the personal as well. If you suffer as immense, in an immense way, you have two options. You become, you, you succeed, you become great. Think about it, all the greats, all the great philosophers suffered. Nietzsche had bad bowel problems and eventually bad mental problems. Leo Tolstoy, incredibly suicidal nihilistic for a large portion of his life. Jung was some could argue went a bit cray cray, psychotic break. And not just that, Elon Musk, he slept on the couch of an office for a more than a year, more than a multiple more than multiple years. He dropped out of college at the time when he was starting up his business. He got fired from his own business. So these are the greats. They failed and they've suffered. And because but because of that suffering and this this the suffering isn't tiny. This is immense suffering. But because of that and in spite of it, they say, Bugger you suffering, I'm gonna do it. Now, those of you who are suffering, it will be hard for you to realize that you can say, bugger you suffering. You can say, bugger you, I'm going to do something, I'm going to be somebody. But you can. And it may take some time to realize that. It may whatever and now I tell you of course no one likes to listen to advice but writing a plan having your goals and creating a plan to the goal and acting single mindedly and yes whatever your suffering may be try as hard as possible to block it out. And number one thing. Block out the noise. <laughs> As my doctor would say. Excuse my awful language once more. Fuck them. Okay. That, that's my advice. If you're in that situation. Check out. If you want productivity. Check out Ali Abdul. I, I can't recommend him more. If you want. Constant intellectual development and just mental growth. Check out podcasts like Lex Friedman. The those types, etc. So that that is my advice if you're suffering. Nevertheless, it is evident by history's greats, Nikola Tesla as well, that. To become great, you must first suffer. That's why Carl Jung had the quote. Um, I believe it goes along. It goes goes like this. I believe every tree it is said, um, and every for every tree it is said, 
for um, it to reach to heaven, its roots must, must, must reach down to hell. Slight paraphrase at the beginning, but it's essentially the gist of it. So to succeed, you must suffer. And that is what we see with Russia. To succeed, you must suffer, and you must succeed because you suffer and in spite of it. So that's 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 your hope if you are suffering. That's 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 what you need to hold on to. Contrast that, as is the case, sadly, with a large, a large minority, and sadly, quite a quite a majority at times. Sometimes people can't handle it, and they can't find a way to escape it. And by escape it, I don't mean alcoholism or suicide, but by escape it, I mean succeed. And they just, they, they, they turn to drink. They turn to suicide. They turn to antisocial behavior and antisocial action, actions among boys. And self-harm and such. And in those situations, that would ju- that just increases the suffering, and hence increases the the need for such negative escape mechanisms. And now this is so obvious in Russia. I've just gone through the past ten minutes talking about alcoholism in Russia and its negative effects, the life expectancy decrease, etc. We've got the point that sometimes, as in the case of Russia, which we have established has had to made thousands, millions, possibly billions of sacrifices and hence and has suffered immensely. And in that suffering many can't handle it anymore and turn to drink, turn to self-harm, turn to suicide, turn to antisocial behaviour and when I say antisocial I don't mean being introverted. I mean crime, I mean violence etc however all is not lost to use a cliche as i had alluded to and spent some time on earlier you can succeed and you need to succeed because any other option is kind of death pain and even more suffering so this is also evident in the case of russia you may think, hold on, Russia, suffering is immense. Alcoholism is, as a problem, is widespread. Nevertheless, greatness occurs. We have Dostoevsky. We have Leo Tolstoy. We have Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is a very special case. Over uh, the Christmas holidays... In the following uh, wee while, I read the Gulag Archipelago. And, you know, it really did strike me, that book, the Gulag Archipelago. Now, you may ask, why? Because my perception of Russia, of the Russian people at the time, I thought to myself, okay, yeah, there are the greats that occur... But they're not widespread. They're the rarity. They're not the norm. In Russia, the norm isn't to become great in spite of your suffering and because of your suffering. Rather, the norm is 
to drink, to be antisocial. However, Alexander Solzhenitsyn has essentially removed the veil from my eyes and kind of showed me the truth. Now, I'll tell you, I highly recommend Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Dialogue of Capella. It's probably top five books, top three books. It's incredible. Now, why, may you ask, why did it change my perception that, no, it's not just the rarity. The great, being great is not just the rarity. Because, again and again and again, throughout the Gulag tale, you see greats emerging because of and in spite of the suffering of the Gulags. Despite the Gopniks, the thieves, as Solzhenitsyn calls them, the calls them the class of people that are malicious, and it seems impossible for their behaviour to change. They will take every opportunity to satisfy their pleasure. Hedonists, essentially, and so. Alexander Solzhenitsyn describes to us a literal hell on earth with the thieves crawling everywhere trying to convince the devils that they deserve a little more gruel. However, in spite of this, and often because of this, angels emerge. If we look at the case of Alexander Solzhenitsyn himself, in the chapter, in the chapter labelled The Ascent, <coughs> excuse me, awfully sorry, in the chapter labelled The Ascent, Alexander Solzhenitsyn describes and explains the process by which many people in the gulags became better, they became great. By great, I don't necessarily mean they became a world-renowned author, an entrepreneur, a military leader, an explorer, whatever. No, they became great in the sense that they made a noble sacrifice, or they lived, they decreased the net suffering in the world. They lived by a moral code. And so... Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian, presents us with the best case of greatness emerging from suffering. And that, no, you're wrong, Ryan. It's not the rarity in Russia and it's not the rarity in the world that only a few achieve greatness whilst suffering. No. Because it is because it is because of suffering that people become great, and in spite of suffering, they become great. Now there are those that, in the process of experiencing suffering, collapse. Thus, we realize that despite our suffering. Thus, despite the evil sacrifices, the unjust sacrifices we need to make, thus, 
despite the fact that our noble sacrifices may seem meaningless, despite it all, despite it all, we become great in spite of our suffering and because of it. And if we can just hold on and continue and learn from our suffering and most importantly know ourselves or know thyself so that we can grow in our suffering. And if we learn in our suffering and we hold on, we hold on, then we can as Alexander Solzhenitsyn so clearly states, ascend, we can ascend. I shall now like to finish with a wee, wee phrase from the book, the Gulag Archipelago. Looking back, I saw that for my whole conscious life, I had not understood either myself or my strivings. What had seemed for so long to be beneficial now turned out in actuality to be fatal, and I had been striving to go in the opposite direction to that which was nece truly necessary to me. But just as the waves of the sea knock the inexperienced swimmer off his feet and keep tossing him back onto the shore, so also was I painfully tossed back on dry land by the blows of misfortune. And it was only because of this, this misfortune, that I was able to travel a path which I had always really wanted to travel. Ladies and gentlemen, we must travel that path. That path which at first, which as an inexperienced swimmer we perceive as the opposite of what we desire. The path essentially of suffering. Ladies and gentlemen, it is through that path, through misfortune and suffering, that if we hold on, if we know ourselves, if we learn from the suffering, we grow. We travel along the good and narrow. We stick to the good and narrow and hence become great. Hence become akin to Dostoevsky, Leo Tolstoy, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and even non-Russians, Elon Musk, Carl Jung, Viktor Frankl, etc. We become great. We become we become, we imitate Christ in our actions. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, do not become downtrodden by misfortune. Rather, hold your head high, and if anyone tries to say otherwise, say, fuck him, excuse my language, and stick to that path, stick to your goal. And through that suffering, and because of that suffering, you will become great. Thank you so very much to listening to this very surprisingly long episode of the Bloody Brent Bushes podcast. I thank you so much, and I hope to see you sooner than the last time. And now, for now, Alvita Sein, au revoir, and goodbye.